This is Hubwonk. I'm your host, Joe Salvaggi. Welcome to Hubwonk, a podcast of Pioneer Institute, a think tank in Boston. The Boston is famous for the Boston Tea Party and the Boston Red Sox. We've achieved infamy for the costs and delays of the Boston Big Dig, the most expensive highway project in U.S. history. Those who lived through its construction remember the disruption, delays, and detours that left the region disoriented for more than the decade it took to complete. Far from the attention of population distracted by a pandemic, a new transportation project looms on the horizon that could be as disruptive for commuters from the West as the Big Dig was for those from the North and South. Final plans for a $1 billion, six to 10 year project known as the I-90 Alston Multimodal Project are being decided. At the project's core is the narrow strip of Alston bounded by Boston University and the Charles River. Aptly named The Throat, it now accommodates eight lanes of the Massachusetts Turnpike, four commuter rail tracks, four lanes of Soldier Field Road, and a recreational path on the river embankment. Stakeholders from the State House, Boston City Hall, Boston University, and various advocacy groups have been hashing out which plan serves the future of Boston commuters best. But commuters with memories of the Big Dig still have one more vital concern. Who is considering the impact of the project on commuters while the project is being built? Are we in for another decade of traffic jams? Or can project managers be required to minimize the effect of our commuters from the West? Here to help answer that question is Jim Aloisi, a Boston-based writer and consultant with a specialty in transportation planning and policy. He served as Massachusetts Secretary of Transportation from 2008 to 2009, was member of the Board of Massachusetts Port Authority and Massachusetts Turnpike Authority, and wrote the definitive history of the Big Dig in 2004. Joining me from Pioneer Institute is Mary Connaughton, Pioneer's Director of Government Transparency and Director of Finance and Administration. Mary co-authored a Boston Globe opinion piece with Jim Aloisi entitled, During Construction, the Alston Mass Pike Project Must Address Commuters' Needs. As veteran transportation policy experts, Jim and Mary will discuss how the wisdom gleaned from past projects must inform how best to consider the needs of the commuter during the project. When we return, I'll be joined by Jim Aloisi and Mary Connaughton. Okay, we're back. This is Hubwonk. I'm your host, Joe Salvaggi. I'm now joined by Jim Maloisi and Mary Connaughton. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Hi, Joe. Joe. It's Thank great you. to be here. All right. Well, I'm pleased to, to have... Both of you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm pleased to have guests with literally decades of experience in, uh, in with Massachusetts transportation projects. Jim, since you literally wrote the book on the history of the last massive transportation project in the Commonwealth, why don't you go first uh, I'll let you start us, start us off. The I-90 Alston Multimodal uh, Project, as it's called. Uh, what is it? Why do we need it? When will it start? And of course, how long will it last? Well, thanks, Joe. Uh, this, um, this is a big project and it's an expensive project, but it's tiny compared to the big dig. Um, there's nothing like that. That's a once in a lifetime uh, event. But this is a really important project. The this project is significantly focused uh, on a safety issue, which is right now the turnpike when it enters Boston um, at, around Alston Landing where BU is, is on an elevated structure. And many people, many drivers probably never, they probably know it deep down inside, but they never really think about it because 
from the driver perspective, you know, it's seamless. But that elevated structure, like all elevated structures, um, gets old, it deteriorates, and eventually needs to be replaced. And so that structure, which was built in the early 1960s, has basically uh, is coming up to the end of its useful life and uh, needs to be replaced. Now, in connection with that, we have the opportunity at Alston Landing, partly as a result of the turnpike transitioning away from toll booths and toward all electronic tolling. So that massive toll plaza that of necessity was there in the 20th century, as we all know who drive it and is no longer there. And the combination of needing to replace the viaduct and then having the, the opportunity to do something at Alston is what's presenting itself. Now the project uh, we're talking about a project north of probably $1.5 billion. Uh, so not trivial money, replacing the viaduct. The, the key to the conversation that we're going to have and that people have been having is how to do it. Meaning, do you replace the viaduct with another viaduct? Or do you do something different with a so-called at-grade non-viaduct solution that also satisfies other needs? And those other needs that are directly tied into this question of how to rebuild the turnpike include opening up opportunities for people to more safely uh, use the riverbank from a bike and ped perspective, and the opportunity for people coming from the West and going to the West to have better multimodal connections. And so you'll hear us talk about West Station, a new station, grounded at Alston Landing that would serve as a multimodal hub for people coming from Framingham, Natick, and all the way from Worcester, and hope, and then connecting those people to various destinations in greater Boston, including jobs-rich Kendall Square through the old Grand Junction line. So as I've said a mouthful, the, the, the project uh, even though it's sort of, in some people's minds, narrowly focused on a replacement of a viaduct, is actually a project that uh, includes many opportunities for the region. And the danger points that are presented, what Mary and I were hoping to do in the op-ed that we had in the Globe recently, is to make people understand that the, the danger points are mobility during construction. We're talking about construction, a design construction process that will last probably a decade, maybe more. This is a 10 year at least project. How do people in Metro West, how do people in Worcester access jobs, access healthcare, access whatever destinations they need to access? And how do we make sure that they can do that safely, efficiently, affordably, and in a way that doesn't um, diminish the quality of their lives. That was, I think, the focus of what we were trying to cast light on in the op-ed, and that we'll talk about more today. Well, Mary, you are the co-author of that op-ed uh, with Jim, uh, and uh, the gist of the, the piece is that you're concerned that if the project takes a decade or longer and involves so many modes of transportation, we've got the pike, we've got the commuter rail, we've got Soldiers Field Road, and... Uh, and the river, the embankment. Um, what do you worry? Uh, what do you think 
commuters should be concerned about? Uh, and are their issues being addressed with the plan? Well, certainly, as Jim touched on it, the big issue, at least as I see it, for the the project's duration, which could be up to 10 years, is how people primarily from points west are going to get into Boston. You know, after this pandemic, people will go back to Boston. They will be taking commuter rail. They will be on the turnpike. And just for, for some historical context, in the 1950s, late 1950s and early 1960s, uh, Framingham was the fastest growing community in the nation. And the reason was the, the two exits it had on the turnpike and all that brought to Metro West. I mean, it, the turnpike became the life's blood of Metro West and this area flourished. And the challenge is going to be if this is a long-term project, as Jim said, up to 10 years, what will that, how will that impact all those people, the tens of thousands of people that uh, access Boston via the turnpike or via commuter rail? Right now, there's many more people that take the turnpike than commuter rail, but the Framingham-Worcester line is, is the fastest growing line, or historically, or well, since the pandemic, had been the fastest growing line in the commuter rail system. And with the work order slowdowns, with lane reductions, and this uh, uh, very scary notion that at some points during the construction, the commuter rail has to, might go down to a single track depending upon the option they choose. Um, that could be really disruptive. And not only does that impact the people going in and out of the city each day, because just think about the, the what, what had been an hour, hour and a half commute from points west to Boston already, if there's significant lane reductions or uh, a slowdown in track, uh, uh, down to a single track, that disrupts the lives of so many people. But it also impacts the economy of the re of regions west of Boston, because so much, so many companies are dependent on getting back and forth to Logan Airport or um, you know that. Thankfully, the big dig made a whole lot easier, as Jim has documented in his history of, of the big dig, which I read about twice, which was great. But um, it's really important that we consider what the impact is going to be on the commuter. And in my mind, that should be at the top of the minds of those that are ultimately deciding on this project. I just wanted to weigh in with something else to build on what Mary said, and that I, I want to make the fiscal case for the position that Mary and I are taking. If you think about costs, first of all, with respect to the, the viaduct and not rebuilding a viaduct, but building an aggregate, over the lifespan of, a, of the system, it costs much, much, much more to operate and maintain a viaduct than it does an aggregate highway, right? You just gotta think about the viaduct as a bridge and then think about all of the additional maintenance and costs associated with that. So just from a pure fiscal perspective, if you can avoid rebuilding a viaduct, you would do it because it's the least expensive over the life cycle of the asset. Then think about the cost that the state has, has incurred investing in, I would say wisely, because it happened when I was secretary, uh, investing in buying the Worcester line right of way out to Worcester from CSX a significant investment, why would we now 
deprive people along the Worcester line of the optimal use of that investment for the next decade or more, it doesn't make fiscal sense. So from a, just from a fiscal case perspective, we need to be exploiting in the best sense of the word and building on the investments we've made, not abandoning them, not making them suboptimal. And partly the reason why it's important to make sure that two tracks are going to be open during all operating hours is to do just that, is to make, is to avoid a situation where commuter rail travel has become suboptimal because people just find that the, 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 the schedules, the frequencies simply don't work to meet their, uh, their needs. I was surprised in reading your article that, in fact, most, if not all, the plans have some moments whereby the uh, Worcester Rail would be uh, unavailable. Um, One thing, we're not sure of that. I mean, mm -hmm. it would make sense, as Jim said, not only is it uh, cheaper to go all that great in terms of the life cycle costs of the project, um, it also can be done, at least some engineers are saying it can be done and maintain two-track service throughout the project's duration. The challenge is that MassDOT has not yet uh, released all the construction phasing plans for the options under consideration. And I think that's a key component that they're, they're working on developing a consensus uh, or developing a consensus for a, a particular option for the throat. But I believe the public needs to see what the, what the construction phasing is for each option so it can actually tell, you know, what is in the commuter's best interest. And as Jim was saying, not only does it make sense for, from a fiscal standpoint to make sure that that commuter rail stays open, but there's so many environmental considerations. I mean, the goal had been to get more and more people to use the T, get them off the road, reduce congestion, reduce emissions, and get them into um, to public transportation. And that was really on the cusp of making a major breakthrough on the Worcester line. I mean, it was getting filled more and more. I take that line. And uh, for it to slow down or to, or to go to a single tra track and discourage people from using that line just sim simply means it, it, it's, it, it's kind of, unheard, it should be unheard of. So what we're asking for is to get the construction phasings and make them public so the public can comment and really see what is it, what are the bottlenecks or what can prevent you know, two lines from being open at all times. And what we're proposing, Mary and I, is very consistent with the Governor's Commission on the Future of Transportation, which said very clearly that their vision of the future was moving more people and fewer vehicles. And it's also consistent with the Governor's goal of having zero emissions by 2050. You can't reach those goals unless you begin to think about the kinds of things that we're talking about, right? This is just one element of it, but you really do need to, to again, using in the best sense of the word, exploit the assets you have, not abandon them, which is why we're focused on not ceding the decision-making on two tracks at West Station to the consultant, but having MassDOT basically bake it into the system. I mean, the problem here, I think, in some respects, I think there's an expression, if I get it right, you know, if, if all you have is a hammer, everything is a nail. And if you think about this, it's a true multimodal issue that's in front of us, but it's mass dot, the highway side of the equation calling most of the shots. 
And I think, you know, of necessity, there's a bias there to be more highway oriented than than transit or rail oriented. But and so and so I think, you know, what we're trying to do and what others are trying to do, uh, certainly Rick Domino over at A Better City has been, I think, one of the strong leaders, as has the city and the mayor. And 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 then out to the west, the Senate president and uh, former Lieutenant Governor Murray, who now leads the chamber in Worcester, a lot of significant public leadership on from the Boston area out to Worcester and in between um, have focused their concerns on this project. And Mary, would you like to add to what Jim just said? Yes. Uh, thanks, Jim. And, and, and Joe, there are a lot more things that um, MassDoc can do to mitigate some of the negative effects during the project's construction that uh, we talked about in our op-ed. Uh, we could have level boarding. Right now, there's a significant dwell time at many stations as people go up and down the stairs to board trains. Now, at uh, South Station and at uh, Boston Landing and at uh, and other stops, there, there's uh, they they've built the ramps so there's level boarding. You just get on and get off. No stairs involved, and they could do that throughout the throughout the commuter rail system. Certainly in the Worcester line at key stops, and there are other ways that they can improve uh, commutes for others. And a lot <clears throat> in Framingham and Ashland right now. I mean, if we have we should have more trains, but more trains also means more congestion in areas where they have at great crossings, namely Framingham and Ashland. And uh, so this, the MassDOT and the MBTA can look at what they can do to um, perhaps put those underground and uh, avoid all the congestion at the stoplights where those cross major, um, major roadways. It's a real matter, I think, Mary, of um, looking at this in some respects as regional equity. You know, we hear, we always talk about the word equity and we always hear people talk about regional equity. What we're talking about here is really, is making it real. This is not theoretical or and it shouldn't be aspirational. If we're gonna have regional equity, we've gotta give people access from the West to the East and vice versa, you know, because the same issues that are gonna plague people in Framingham, Natick and throughout Metro West and Worcester, are the same issues that will plague Boston area residents who may have jobs in those places and you know need to reverse commute. Mm. And so, um, but the regional equity stuff is significant. We can't afford to have anybody think about Austin Landing as a Boston project. It's a regional project with regional implications. And if we're gonna be fair to all residents of Metro Boston, then we have to bake into this project elements that are fair to everybody. And that includes the people of Metro West, and that includes everyone along the Worcester line card or going out to the, the second largest city in the state. Right. And also, when you think about it, we have a new stadium being built in Worcester. And uh, I think I, a whole I'm, lot of people would like to get on that, to get on the Worcester line to see the, uh, the Woo Sox oh, uh, no without question. problem or hop on the turnpike. But if they're delayed, what happens to that new team? You know, that's. Well, I talked to the folks at the Woo Sox and, uh, a little while ago, and they were shocked at this because, you know, they're not, not only are they building a 10,000 person stadium there, they're building office and housing within 
footsteps of Worcester Union Station. So right. the idea that that they're going to open all this up and then for the next decade, they're going to be constrained. I mean, we're not supporting this massive private sector investment. Jim, your point is a good one that there's a lot of investment already on the table. Uh, we don't want to jeopardize the progress we've already made. But I want to uh, take a step back and maybe uh, a more uh, 10,000 feet view of the projects. Uh, there are several options on the table, each of which have costs and attending benefits. Uh, you haven't said which you prefer, though you have said uh, Viaduct is more expensive uh, than AtGrade. Uh, do either of you, Jim or Mary, have a strong preference for one plan that's on the table at this time? I personally prefer, um, and I believe Jim does too, and he could follow up <laughs> to this, but uh, I, I prefer the um, modified all that grade option. I mean, Pioneer did public comment on that option back in November in response to a scoping report saying that we believe that this is in the best interest of the Commonwealth, the commuters, um, primarily because of the, the amount of time it would take to build, which we believe it would reduce the project's duration. The overall cost, as Jim said, the life cycle costs would be lower for this. And we believe that the engineers can structure it in a way that would keep two lines of the Worcester, of the Worcester um, commuter rail going at all times. But the issue there is, again, we need to see the construction phasing that MassDOT has that needs to be made public. I agree with Mary. I think they modified all that grade um, is really the right way to go. It doesn't diminish any of the of the benefits of auto mobility along a newly built turnpike uh, uh, portion. Um, what it does do is it improves the ability of people along the riverside to walk safely and to cycle safely. And uh, I think it has some additional benefits in terms of avoiding some of the dangerous S-curves that currently exist as you come up the viaduct. So I think it's a safer solution. I think it's a less, I don't think, I know, it is a less expensive solution over time. And it is the most sustainable solution in that it encourages and enhances these other modes that right now uh, are constrained along the river and sometimes are unsafe. And so uh, the city, I believe, is a strong supporter of this. A better city is a very strong proponent of this. Um, and I think th this solution will hopefully enable people to then focus on issues like West Station and keeping two tracks. Now, the secretary has to make a decision. Uh, th that decision's got to be supported by a final environmental impact statement. That has to be approved at the federal level. So there's a lot of steps to go, but all of that's supposed to happen, in theory, by the end of the year. Um, we'll see. And then um, the process of design engineering begins. But as I said earlier, this is a long haul. And um, if we don't get it right, we'll be spending the next 10 years building something that, that uh, people will not be happy with. And not just not be happy with, that won't respond to their needs as citizens of the Commonwealth to have access to the key destinations that they need to have access to. And it's not going to respond to the private sector investment that's been happening in Worcester, that's happening in Framingham and Natick, and that depends on 
a commuter rail system that functions at a reasonably high level of reliability. That's those are really the issues at stake here. And to, just to add on to that, one one thing with the um, all at grade option, we won't be having the same co- conversation fifty or sixty years from now if it's not an, if it turns out to be a viaduct option. There's a lifespan associated with any bridge, typically between 50, 60 years. We're well over that with many of the bridges right now in the state that are structurally deficient. We've made great strides in in working down the number of structurally deficient bridges. But if there's an option to do all at grade, let's save the next generation from having to go through this process again. And now we like at Hubwonk Doc to think we're having academic conversations, but real world uh, policy choices that are uh, the legislators who listen to the show or uh, the activist uh, voters who listen to the show. Uh, it, it seems clear that uh, the at grade option ticks all the boxes, both short term, intermediate and long term. Uh, first, tell our listeners who would oppose what seems to be uh, the apparent better choice. Uh, and for those who listen to the show and are persuaded by your arguments, what could they do uh, to uh, help advocate for what seems like the better long-term solution? Well, one of the issues with any with um, with the all at grade option is that there'd be some um, intrusion on the riverbank and may perhaps an extent to to the Charles River itself. And um, you know there are environmentalists, environmental concerns that would like to have no intrusion onto the river. Anytime there's a piling or something put forth over the riverbank, it, it, um, there's additional permitting that's involved. And the permitting can be more onerous than, um, than maybe people would like and delay the project or have other issues associated with it. So it, it's a balance between the Charles River and um, and, uh, and, and and going with a viaduct option that may or may not impact the river at all. But certainly with the improved, with the all at grade options, there could, the, the Charles River in that area can become beautiful park space. Right now, the Paul, it's the Paul Dudley White walking, bicycle and pedestrian bridge that needs a home. And right, if you drive by there on Soldiers Field Road, you see in some areas that that. Paul Dudley White bike path is really narrow. It accommodates pedestrians and cyclists going in both directions. And uh, for safety, to improve bicycle travel, it makes sense to widen that. And any intrusion onto the river would involve the Paul Dudley White, something that you know is, is very favorable for the environment. So it's getting over that hurdle and understanding that this is an improvement to the Charles River with the all that grade option. It doesn't take away from the Charles River. It makes it better. I think that's a great way to put it. I think that there are three things I'd like to add to that. Um, this, the, the potential intrusion into the river to have people cycling and walking basically over the river, right? People boat over the river. I don't get what the opposition is to having people, act, you know, using and, and benefiting from the natural resource. But that's happening at the widest point of the river, not the narrowest, the widest, number one. Number two, this river 
it was created because basically, I mean, the river was there, but what we enjoy today, what people see today happened because we, we human beings intervened and dammed the river at Charles Gate, right? That, that, this is not the natural Charles River. And so the idea that somehow we can't have a boardwalk over it with people because of the, the river, well, maybe we should not dam the river and see what it would look like and we wouldn't be having the conversation. So let's be honest about what exists and why it exists. It exists because of human intervention, right? The third point, the consequence of keeping an elevated viaduct and reducing tracks to one track, the consequence to emissions regionally, I think over time has more, more significant negative environmental impacts on more people than a modest intrusion of a bike and ped boardwalk at the, at the widest part of the river. People who claim to care about sustainability got to get real and got to be practical and need to know when to fight and when not to fight. This is not the occasion to fight. This is the occasion to embrace a creative solution that's people friendly, that's environmental friendly, and that responds to the historic accuracy of what really is going on there. So you're making even an environmental case for the at-grade choice. Absolutely. Uh, so the environmentalists <laughs> who oppose it are a bit short-sighted and overly focused on uh, change, perhaps not necessarily looking at what the ultimate best outcome will be. Yes, uh, right. As someone who ride, uh, I run that strip every morning. I'm a runner between BU and, and uh, River Street. Uh, for the record, a part of the path under that BU bridge is a boardwalk. Um, where I think what you're imagining is something akin to that, just yep. along nice the entire way. length. Nicer along, and safer. Th- along that throat area, yes. That's yeah, right. And the, I, uh, a better city has done some remarkably helpful diagrams of what this could look like. And I think if you see the vision that is expressed in the material that they have put out, um, it's, it's something that I have a hard time seeing uh, people uh, oppose. It's a very positive vision, not not an anti-environment vision, but a very strong pro-environment vision. All right, finally, uh, for our listeners, we're getting close to the end of our show. Um, there's a lot of information. Uh, I think you, Jim and Mary, have been deep in the weeds with the uh, choices at hand. Where can listeners go to learn? Really, uh, again, we're, we've been talking about a visual concept, something that's in, in a three-dimensional space, but we're, they're listening on on a podcast, where can they go for pictures and, and renderings of the choices and uh, learn more about the project in detail? I'd first stop I'd make is, is a better city. Go to a better city. I think it's .org. And um, Rick Domino and his team have put together really great visuals and a very straightforward explanation of what they're proposing. I believe that what you see there has also basically reflects uh, the city of Boston's point of view. Uh, the city probably has material on their website, but I'm more familiar with the ABC website. <clears throat> and of course, um, on the Mass.State site, you'll find a lot of basic information about the project and diagrams and that sort of thing. Mary, do you know of other resources? Yes. Um, also, the uh, Boston Society of Architects has done some drawings um, in connection with the Charles River Alliance. They've shown like lagoons and all and potential potential ways of pla- placing the Paul Dudley White that are very very appealing. So there, there's a number of places that you can go for that, um, and certainly there'll be more presentations, more public presentations. I believe Mass Dot is putting on um, 
public hearings uh, over the next couple of weeks at various places. So if you go to the Mass Dot um, um, website, you'll find out more about it. Wonderful. Uh, well, we're getting close to the end of our show. And so I'm thrilled. We only briefly mentioned the word COVID or epidemics. I'm thrilled. It's nice to uh, talk about something else for a change. Uh, we have a big election coming up. Uh, I think this is a wonderful uh, distraction, an important distraction. Now, this is all going to be wrapped up in a bow. When will this finally be decided? You, Jim, you mentioned by the end of this calendar year. I believe that's the timetable. And the secretary it really does is in a position where she's gonna make a decision. Um, and uh, hopefully it'll be made. I think people are frankly concerned about the dialogue right now being a little bit of a one-way dialogue and not a two-way dialogue. So, but there's been enough support and pressure. Um, I did notice that the Senate president uh, favorably retweeted Mary's, uh, the op-ed that I did with Mary. Um, I know that the mayor of Boston has weighed in as well. So, you know, hopefully the political figures like the Senate president and the mayor and others um, and the general consensus among activists and advocates for a better transportation system across ideological spectrum uh, will persuade the secretary to, to, to go with the modified act grade option and also to, to direct Master not to secede the decision on two tracks to the contractor, but to explore every possible way to make that happen. And then to exploit, and again, in the best sense of that word, the asset that we, the public, helped pay for, which is the Worcester line, and make that work as optimally as possible for people. All right. Well, that's a, uh, we'll leave it on that note. Uh, that's wonderful. You've, uh, You've helped get the Hubwonk listeners um, a lot more informed, and uh, uh, let's hope for the best. We'll, we'll do a follow-up uh, episode when the when the uh, plans are made and, and see if they meet they pass muster with uh, you, Jim, and you, Mary. Thank you for being on the show today. Well, thank, thank you, you Joe. for having me. I'm looking forward to um, having Mary and I invited to help cut the ribbon when they open up the uh, modified <laughs> as, as former Turnpike <laughs> board members. I don't know that how old we'll be then, but we'll be there. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that's a wonderful we'll plan. Be, we'll, we'll, we'll still be kids, Jim. <laughs> I thought she was going to say, we'll still be pains in the neck to the people. In we'll, we'll yeah, like what, a red ribbon? Where's the blue ribbon? <laughs> All right, thank you very much. Bye-bye. Thanks, Jeff. Nice to see you. Bye. This has been another episode of Hubwonk, a podcast of Pioneer, a think tank in Boston. I'm your host, Joe Salvaggi. If you enjoyed today's show, there are several ways you can support us. You can give us a five-star rating, you can leave a review, and you can share it with friends. If you have comments or suggestions for future episodes, you can reach me at hubwonk at pioneerinstitute.org. Please join me next week for a new episode of Hubwonk. Hubwonk.